Morning, everyone. So we are in the book of Judges, in particular chapter 14 today. And um, I'm going to ask you to think back to the 1980s. And in the 1980s, we had this thing, for those of you that were not born then, we had this thing on TV that as you watched a program, there would be these interruptions to the program about every 10 minutes. And those interruptions were called commercials. And there was really no way around those commercials. You had to watch them. Or you could actually just kind of uh, flip through the channels, but then you had to manually stand up, go to the dial, and old-fashioned click it to the five or six channels that you uh, were able to get at the time as you adjusted the rabbit ears with tinfoil. But these things called commercials. There were three iconic commercials that I remember that came out in the mid to late 80s, and I think you remember them as well. The first had to do with this. Do you remember that one? Clap on, clap off. The clapper. Then there was this one for a fast food restaurant, and I will not name the type of fast food restaurant it is or the name of it, but it went like this. <laughs> that was my line. If you didn't hear it, the line was, where's the beef? And again, again, I'm not going to tell you what restaurant that's for, but they had that. Then my all-time favorite, and it's already there up on the screen, I've fallen and I can't get up. Do you actually remember what that commercial was for? It was like a medical alert button, which in all seriousness, that's a good thing. But the way they did that commercial, everyone's just fallen and they press it, I've fallen and I can't get up. And I know that has saved a lot of people, but wow, that's funny. It was funny. Saturday Night Live did skits on all of those, but my favorite was that I've fallen and I can't get up. And anytime someone falls, you always think to yourself, can you get up or do we need to press a button and help you up? But pressing a button and getting up is a good thing. It is a really good thing when you finally realize I need help and I cannot do it on my own. Having that quick call button to life alert, or maybe that's the name of a company, one of those little med alerts is an amazing thing, but wow, it is totally funny, that phrase, I've fallen and I can't get up. Samson, although he is listed in um, Hebrews chapter 11 as a great champion of the faith, and he is an example to us of how to live the faith in a vibrant, godly way, falls constantly. And instead of asking God, help me up, he finds a solution on his own to get up and get on with life. And if he had only learned that lesson of Jephthah and the lesson of Gideon and the lesson of other judges before him, you need to depend on God in every area of your life. And if you take one area of your life and you slice it out for yourself and go it yourself, I guarantee you, you will come back to me one day and say, Tim, my life became miserable. I did this. Why did this happen to me? Why does my life feel lacking joy, unfulfilled? I have no friends. Why, why am I like this? And it can be charted back to that moment when you've fallen. And instead of turning to God saying, help, you took it upon yourself with your own means and your own wisdom and maybe the encouragement of others and you charted a path and a course in your own strength and in your own wisdom. And when you do that, there is no surprise 
if towards the end of that path, life is hard and you have fallen. Samson, as we saw last week, a miraculous birth, miraculous events surrounding his birth, a visit from an angel twice, the angel of the Lord, and he's born. That's kind of where we ended chapter 13. Chapter 14 starts with him being an adult already. We don't have any of his early childhood memories or stories, but we're starting with this in chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now let me real quickly, the Philistines is a group of people that have always plagued the Israelites, and it is really hard even today to figure out where the Philistines came from. They were definitely on the west side of Israel, so they were right on the Mediterranean Sea. So if Calvary is Jerusalem and we're looking at Pueblo as the nation of Israel, the west side, where the reservoir is, is kind of where the Philistines were, where the Mediterranean Sea would have been. They were up and down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and the best science, actual genetic science, says that they might be some type of um, cross between the Greeks, the Romans, and maybe the Egyptians. Somehow there was this new group of people called the Philistines that were living on the west side of Israel, continually plaguing them. So up until this point, we have only seen people from the east side of Israel, the nations of Iraq and Iran, modern day, invading and pestering Israel. And so all the judges were over on the east side, taking care of things. Well, this is happening now on the west side. And Timnah is just one of the villages up and down that coastline. And Samson is hanging out on the coastline. And he sees someone, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and of course, in verse 2, then he comes up and tells his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Wow. I guess kids had attitudes back then too. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people? that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? His parents knew, ooh, this is going to turn out bad. This is not going to go well. You are marrying outside the faith. They're not circumcised. They do not know God as their God. They do not know the law of Moses. These are parents who I'm sure have taught their children, or Samson, the only child they had, God. He's not distant. He's not unsure. He's not ignorant of the truth. He was raised under the Nazarite vows of touching nothing dead, of not drinking alcohol, of not cutting his hair. Surely he would have known that marrying inside the faith was the norm. But he's wandering around, sees a woman of the Philistines, and tells his mom and dad, Get her for my wife. I think their answer is beautiful. Let's think this through. But as it happens so much with the emotion of love, right, that it doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter what facts are. It doesn't matter what morally before God he has said. We run with this emotion, whether it be love or anger, and we just let it out. And we feel that it is right and natural just to let it out. Even if God has put standards upon it, we give ourselves and others the excuse, well, they're in love. 
Well, they may have affections for each other, but it doesn't mean, according to God, they should be married. Samson didn't want anything to do with that because he says at the end of that verse 3, but Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That was just Samson's way of saying, she's beautiful, caught my fancy, I'm in love with her, she's gorgeous, that's who I want. Nothing about she will help me raise a godly family. Nothing about she will push me towards godliness. She will encourage me towards my endeavor of being a judge. She will fulfill what God has desired of me as a husband. No, 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 no. It's all about she is pretty, beautiful. Now, there's nothing wrong with beauty and, and prettiness and handsome, handsomeness. Nothing wrong with that. But if that is your only standard for marriage or a relationship, you've fallen. You've fallen. Not in love, but you've fallen before God's standard. All of that being said, we still have verse 4. And if you haven't read ahead, let me read this for you. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Mom and dad didn't know that. Samson didn't know that. God did. God knew that even though this was outside of what he had decreed as proper and right, God had a plan, even in that, to bring about victory for Israel. For 40 years, remember at the beginning of chapter 13, the very first verse, for 40 years, the Philistines had ruled over Israel and plagued them and plagued them and plagued them. And one day, in God's will, Samson was walking around, noticed a woman, and said, that's who I want to be my wife. Just out of pure emotion of her beauty, God used that event and brought about incredible opportunities for Samson to rule over the Philistines and destroy them completely as a nation. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, which says, God speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying in this context, and in life in general, you have to understand that I will do things, say things, and accomplish things that, one, do not have your approval, and two, you don't have an understanding of it. Ooh, those are two very hard things for us to accept because we want to approve it. We want to have a say, and then we want to understand it. That's our nature as humans. We're inquisitive. We want to understand and know those things. And when we're told, you don't have an authority to speak on it or give advice, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is, we vote them out and get someone new. Or we change jobs, or churches, or friends, or relationships. But when it comes to a relationship with God, he is crystal clear. I don't always tell you what's going on. And I'm not always going to go to you. In fact, God never comes to us and says, what's your opinion on this? Let me take counsel with you. Oh. We are the ones who go to God and say, let me take counsel with you. Let me find wisdom from your throne. Let me find direction from your mouth. God never asks us, what's your opinion? What do you think we should do? Oh, 
But God says very clearly, in this relationship that I have with my creation, I am God, and you are not. That is the tough lesson that Job learned all through his misery moment of life. Time and time again, God said, okay, this happened to you. I'm not going to tell you why or how, but you're complaining. Your friends are doing the complaining. You're just, you know, pulling it up by the bootstraps and being stoic and emotionless and just going through it. But you have no right to question me. You have no right to ask me why. I'm God and you're not. End of discussion. And so while Samson's parents look at this scenario and go, this is a violation of God's law, do not marry outside the faith, but I don't care how passionate you are for this person, I don't care how passionate they are for you, God's law is super clear, don't. It causes tremendous problems. Yet even in that act of Samson, God's mysterious ways overcome Samson's passions and love. But it doesn't give us an excuse to disobey God, assuming God's going to make it all work out in the end. We've heard that, right? Well, God's going to make it work out in the end. Well, he makes out his will in the end. It may not be for your pleasure or for your comfort that works out in the end. His will is always accomplished in the end. But just because God allows something to happen doesn't mean God's stamp of approval violates his own law in order to get that to happen. So we have some insight. Samson sees a woman. She's a Philistine, wants to marry, has nothing to do with godliness or his plan, but God uses that moment and overcomes it and uses it in a way to bring about great judgment to the Philistines. So we're told then in the next few verses, verses 5 through 9, what happens. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I don't know how one tears a young goat. I don't know how that happens, but Samson tears the lion just like you would tear up a young goat, which I'm assuming tearing up a young goat would be easy, I'm guessing, and tearing up a young lion would be just as easy as tearing up a young goat. Pretty impressive. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she saw, and she, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Again, that idea and understanding, she was beautiful to Samson. And after some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating it as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But, they did not tell, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from a carcass of the lion. There's a lot going on there, isn't there? I mean, I mean, I mean there is a lot happening. Just why no one has made a movie out of these stories in the book of Judges, I don't know. But what a miraculous thing that Samson is walking around in the wilderness and all of a sudden there is a lion. And his natural reaction is to, hey, come here, kitty. 
ripped it apart. But he doesn't do it because he is super strong. I have this against all these children Bibles that show Samson basically as Lou Ferrigno or Arnold Schwarzenegger as a bodybuilder. Have you ever seen those books where he is just like the buffest of the buff? He didn't get his strength from being buff. He got his strength from where? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It wasn't like he was walking around as this superhero of just massive strength, Superman. It is when God called him to action, God empowered him in a way that physically he became strong. I would imagine, and this is going to be shocking maybe to me, but in heaven when we get to meet Samson, and we will meet him, he's one of God's children, he is redeemed and beloved by God, and I imagine in our time in heaven we're going to have a chance to meet everyone from Scripture and everyone from history, and we're going to meet him, and we're going to be expecting this six-foot-five dude who is just totally buff, and we're going to see him as, oh, who is that guy in the Marvel movies, Captain America? What was his name, Steve Austin or something like that? And he, no, that's $6 million man. Roger, Steve Rogers. Thank you for that hint. Steve Rogers, when, before he got that serum and made him super buff and big, he looked like the skinny little runt, right? I think we're going to be surprised when we see Samson that he's not this massive, buff, muscular guy, but that he's maybe has the age of a middle-aged man. And just remarkable how God used him by putting his spirit in Samson. And that is what gave him power. It wasn't that he was big and strong. It's that God was his God every single time. So he's walking around, sees a lion. I'd be freaking out. I'd run away. He doesn't. He grabs the lion, tears it up, goes down, meets his wife, says, this is who I want, comes back. And as he's journeying back, he notices that carcass of a lion and there's bees surrounding it, which I would assume there'd be lots of different flies and bugs surrounding it. And he goes to investigate. Again, not something I would normally do. But he goes and investigates and realizes, wow, there's a bunch of honey in here. That's awesome. Let me scoop it out and eat it. And then give it to my parents. Oh my goodness, Samson, you failed. Now this is a story of Samson's might. He didn't fail at the very beginning. He failed at the end because what did he do at the end? He touched what? A carcass. He broke the Nazarite vow. He was born into that Nazarite vow that he would never touch anything dead. And instead, he not only touches that which is dead, but he does what else? Eats it. Eats the honey that's inside the carcass goes in, and then on top of that, he compounds his failure by giving it to his parents to eat and doesn't tell them where it's from. I'm always going to ask my kids, you got something in the bag we're going to eat? Where'd you get it? Store? Okay. Dead carcass? No thanks. Not, not liking it. I know hamburgers are totally different. That's a completely different thing. That's not a carcass. That's already cut up meat. But this is the dead carcass of a lion. And at the very beginning of the story of Samson's great power, God empowers him. And he turns around in the next few days and violates his vow. Violates his vow. In Joshua chapter 1, 
Joshua says to Israel as they're entering into the promised land, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a beautiful lesson and truth that God gave to the nation of Israel as they went into a promised land that was a wilderness, uncontrolled and uncontained, not just by wild animals, but by the people that lived there. They were enemies of God, haters of God, idolaters. Horrible culture and morals of that nation that surrounded Israel. And God told them, you need to be steady. Be steady. Follow me and focus on me. And don't get worried by the things of this world. This world will have all sorts of turmoil and temptations and frustrations, but don't focus on that. I'm with you. I know that's what gave Samson incredible comfort at that moment that lion appeared. Because Samson knew God called me to rescue Israel from the Philistines. And if this lion takes me, I won't have a chance to do that. So I believe God will be with me in this act. But where Samson fell down is even in this great story of God's power and might, he touched the carcass, touched it, and ate from it. Moving on from there, Samson's story continues in verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for, um, for so the young men used to do. So all we're doing right here in this portion of Scripture is the writer of Judges is telling us a little bit about the wedding ceremony that's taking place, the celebration and ceremonies. And I know this may come as a shock to us, but wedding ceremonies and celebrations are a cultural thing. God doesn't give us any commands in Scripture about how a wedding is to be performed, who has to be present, does there have to be a best man or a maid of honor, does there have to be flowers, does there have to be a veil, does there have to be a dress, none of that. But in this culture, what was very common in the Middle East is that you would have a party that lasted seven days. And that seven-day party, people would come in and out of the party, and it wasn't until the end of that seventh day that you slept with your husband or wife and you became husband and wife. There was no paperwork to sign, no marriage license to get, no witnesses that were necessary. It was just the decision of those two individuals, and the family had a party to celebrate it. And so this is all kind of connecting that cultural party celebration of having a wedding feast. So that's what's happening. People are coming back and forth, just arranging it, getting it all taken care of, and the party is starting to happen. Verse 11, as soon as the people saw him, that is Samson, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Well, that was awful nice of that little town, that Timnah, that Samson, of course, is from out of town. And in order for Samson to have some buddies to hang with and party for the week, they just provided 30 young men that would take care of all of those things that you take care of during a seven-day party, wedding, feast, celebration. But they didn't want Samson to be alone during this because he wouldn't be with his wife until the very last day, evening. So they brought some friends for him to have. Excellent. 30 guys. What a wonderful group of people. And then Samson said to them in verse 12, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, I will then give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, 
you shall give me 30 linens a garment and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. Now this may at first glance seem rather odd to us, but in their culture, it would have been incredibly common for one of the wedding guests or the person who's getting married to entertain the families that are coming in and out of the wedding ceremony or the wedding feast. And so Samson is just kind of doing something to keep everybody talking and everybody happy and everybody kind of engaged. And so he gives them a riddle. And here is the riddle. And the, and the, and the payment for the riddle is if you get my riddle, then I'm going to give you each a change of clothes. But if you don't get the riddle, then you have to give me a change of clothes. Uh, could have gone for money, but they wanted clothes instead. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Now, had we not heard the early part of that story, we may not understand what the riddle means, but I think you can guess exactly what the riddle means. He says, Then on the fourth day, oh, and in three days, they could not solve the riddle. So the very first day, he gives the riddle, three days, they're guessing. Uh, zebra, uh, garbage truck, and going through all the answers for what these riddles might mean. No clue what it is. And on the fourth day, verse 15, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Wow. I'm not sure those are the 30 guys you wanted to invite to your party. What is it with everybody wanting to burn everybody? Did you know? I mean, poor Jephthah was threatened with that. Gideon was threatened with that. Everyone is, if I don't get my way, I'm going to punish you by killing you with fire. Not just you, but your whole house. Well, have you invited us here to impoverish us? That's going to be expensive to pay all this clothing. And Samson's wife wept over him and said, first clue, Samson, probably not the woman you want in your life. She comes to you crying and says, you hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and have not told me what it is. I'm adding the, the voice to it, but I think you can totally understand. Here is someone coming, whining and crying. And ladies, what happens when you go to your man and you cry? You get it. You get what you want. We're suckers for that. I totally know. And so he says to her, Behold, I have not even told my father nor my mother, and I shall tell you. And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. Oh, I think it's going to wear on Samson. I think he's going to break. What do you think? You think he's going to break under this? Absolutely he's going to break, because we're told in the very, that same verse, because she persisted or pressed him hard, then he told the riddle to her people. Oh, no, no, sorry. She wept before him seven days that the feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, so very last opportunity, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, You have, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. 
I don't know how well that marriage is starting out. I mean, I mean, Samson, she may be beautiful, but you know that's not what God intended for you. But God's going to use it in a miraculous way. Samson, even your trip down to meet her, you failed. You touched what you should not have touched. And you brought your parents into it by sharing it with them. Samson, I'm not sure that those 30 friends that you uh, were given to have at the wedding feast are necessarily good buddies. And your wife started your marriage out with crying and weeping, begging and weeping, because she had been threatened by the 30 guys that she invited to the wedding to be your friends that they would burn her and her house down. And you called her a heifer on your wedding night. Every commentary that I've read probably is correct in saying that was not intended as an insult calling her a fat cow. That's not, that it just means you used my property without my permission. Now that's bad enough, but wow, there is so much marriage counseling that needs to happen before the night of their own wedding. So, he decides to make true on his riddle. His riddle was, if you guess it, I'm going to give you each some clothing. And clothing was expensive. And so verse 19 through verse 20, the end of the chapter, concludes this wedding night. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, that is Samson, and he went down to Ashkelon, which was a city probably 20, 25 miles south Again, on the west side of town, it was a, a Philistine city, so it was filled with Philistines, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoils and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Samson... Do you see how one fallen moment of acting on your emotions of beauty in an inappropriate way has led you back to your dad's house full of anger without a wife? I am sure Samson came home and said, Woe is me! How unfair life is! I mean, I try to do all I can. I see God's work in my life. I mean, I tore a lion apart. I killed 30 guys. I got all their stuff, paid off my riddle debt, and now I'm all alone. Am I ever going to get married, Mom? Why does this happen to me, Dad? And I, being a parent, I know that their reaction was not one of cuddling, but one of profound amazement at how thick Samson is. How thick he is in the head. You've got to be kidding me. Life is hard because of this, 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 and this. How did that start? You walked down that path and fell. And instead of at that moment asking God, help me up, you went down and down and down and down. 
every, every verse in this chapter feels like a do-not-do manual for marriage. Do-not-do for your relationships. Oh, Samson, you fell mighty hard. He's doing God's will. He's rooting out the Philistines, but he's doing it all for the wrong reasons. He's not bringing God's justice. Those Philistines down in Axton didn't know it was God's judgment. He just saw, they just saw this wild man from up north, a non-Philistine, coming in and killing people and taking their clothes. They didn't see God's hand of justice there. They saw an angry, bitter person who got bested by his, I can't even say wife because it wasn't his wife anymore. His wife married someone else at the end of the seven days of feasting. In Proverbs 14, verse 32, some take-home things for us to think about. The wicked are crushed by disaster, but the godly have refuge when they die. Samson, this entire time, had opportunity after opportunity to press that help button and say, Lord, get me up, I've fallen. And the wicked are crushed under that and never, never change. They never change. They never cry out to the God of all creation for help. They may cry out, help God, help, but they're not calling to God in a redemptive way. They're calling to, to a God in their mind to help them from the uncomfortable lives that they have created. But the godly, even when they die, have refuge when they fall. In Proverbs 24, verse 16, it says, The righteous may fall seven times, up to seven times, but still get up, but the wicked will stumble into trouble. See, it's nothing, it's nothing impossible or even unhuman for Samson to fall, for him even to get into this same pattern for a whole week of all these troubles. But the difference is someone who is righteous and has God as their God and Christ as their companion of salvation knows that when they fall, they can get back up. Not that they pull themselves back up, but they press that button and say, help, help. Do you remember the story of Jonah? What a beautiful story in just four simple chapters can summarize almost our entire lives. God wants us to do something. We say no. God says, okay, I'm going to let you live in your knownness. And boom, life gets hard, and before long you end up in the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. And what does Jonah do? What does he do? He prays and says, I know that I have sinned. I know that I should have done your will, but I went off on my own rejecting you. Save me. And God looks at a repentant heart that cries out to him for salvation, and he raises him up and says, yes, I will save you. And now Jonah had some more problems because he didn't like the fact that God brought the ungodly to repentance. But God showed mercy first and foremost to Jonah, even though he had fallen. How many times did Peter fail at being a Christian, at standing up for his Lord? Time and time again, Peter failed. But the Lord raised him up every single time, nurtured him, was patient with him. He's going to do the same for Samson, and he will and does do the same for you. You may feel like you have fallen in a part of your life and you don't know how to get out of it. 
You may feel that the button to press for God's help is too hard to press. You may feel that you can't even reach it. The beautiful thing about calling out to God for help is you can do it in your mind. You don't have to say words. You don't have to press a button. You don't have to go through a formula. All you have to do is have a heart and a mind that says, help. And God listens to it. It doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the sea or in the outermost parts of the universe. God is present and listening. The wicked will just burn with anger and frustration and hate. The righteous will take those moments of falling and say, Lord, help me. Help me out of this. In closing, in Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14, the psalmist writes, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers that we are only dust. At first reading, you may think, Tim, that's kind of a slam against me. You mean to tell me that I'm weak? You mean to tell me that all of who I am is just dust? Not to sound crash or harsh, but yeah, the dust you will return one day. Not now, but one day. And yes, you are weak. I know you are weak because you need a Savior to save you from your sins. And God says, I know how weak you are. I know how easy it is for you to fall, and I know how easy it is for you to deteriorate. But know that I am compassionate, I'm loving, I'm patient, I'm good to my family. I love my children. As the band comes up to lead us in this last song, I want you to, I know the hymn is going to be very familiar to you. You're going to know the words. And sometimes when we know something so familiar, we forget to think about the impact of the words. So I need you to promise me that as you see these words and as you sing these words, that you believe them. I know you know them. But this is an opportunity to show your Father in heaven, I am weak and I am needy of you. And these words are going to build you up. So let's stand and pray. Father, we know that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God that is tender of mercy towards us. Lord, we want to learn quicker than Samson that when we've fallen, you lift us up. And Father, we know one day you will lift us up to eternity in heaven itself. And we look forward to that day when our bodies are fully redeemed before you. No more sin, sorrow, pain, or tears. Lord, we long for that day. But until then, Father, may we live dependent upon you because we are weak. And may we live dependent upon you because we are but dust. And may we live acknowledging your compassion for us and for all of those who you've called as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.